Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Punch your face. Rolling. Take one. Is it going to be all right? And welcome to All Through a Lens. This is a podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. And on this episode, The Big Eight Zero, we are talking to Christy Cornell and Marla Kristechevich about a photography and sculpture project around Louisiana's Bayou Tesh. We'll also tell you about Esther Bubbly, one of Roy Stryker's photographers, who became much more than just one of Roy Stryker's photographers. There's also The Answering Machine and the witty banter you've come to expect. So welcome back to another episode of All Through a Lens. Um, but first, Vanya. Mm-hmm. How have you been? I'm good. Uh, I actually went up to Big Bear, saw my mom. Oh, hey, mom. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I walked in the snow and my ass is sore, which was kind of depressing. I also got to shoot a little bit of the new color, uh, 400. Uh, oh, the Orwo stuff? Yeah. Oh, cool. I haven't, I didn't finish the roll yet, okay. but I did start it. So that's exciting. 35 millimeter. Will you and do that for Dev Party? I'm thinking that could be a possibility. Okay. Um, more importantly, <laughs> did your mom mention me? Of course she did. Oh, She's always I, like, how's Eric? I know. She likes you more than me. I, it's true. I don't blame her. <laughs> Anyways, how have you been? That's really all you have to say? Just quick visit to your mom and... Yeah. I mean, I mean I've been looking for a place to live. I'm homeless. Um, that's not really exciting. <laughs> no one wants to hear about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you're not exactly homeless. You, you do have No, a place I have to... my van. Yeah. I sleep in my van. It's amazing. I mean, if I could just sleep in my van, I would, but I have to, I have a child I need to take care of. So uh, I am looking for places. It's been very difficult. It's expensive to live in Los Angeles. Also, not exactly sure what people do for a living (laughs) (laughs) because I keep on not getting stuff because I'm not, I don't make three times the amount of um, what rent is and i'm like well maybe you should lower the rent then because who makes this money who i mean everybody must sell drugs or something i don't know that that must be it certainly no other jobs pay that well no definitely not (laughs) is that good enough would you like some more (laughs) all right enough of that i think you got a little sore yourself i did i went on my first hike of the season and i was all this winter thinking that I was going to you know, exercise and get into shape and I did not. So <laughs> I came back and I, I felt very sore. I don't feel sore now. I'm, I'm fine now. Thank you for, for being so worried. It, it touches my heart. So my first hike was to, you've probably seen my pictures of the, of like the basalt columns. It was mm-hmm. to that big formation, but I came at it in a different direction through ground I'd never been on before. Oh, cool. And it was neat. I, I don't hike around here so much because around Seattle so much because it's very crowded. 
sometimes you have to walk a mile to <laughs> from like where you parked your car to the trailhead because I don't even know how you would find your Subaru within in the sea of Subarus. Oh, it's a, it's an absolute sea of Subarus. You you <laughs> literally have to like start clicking your key so that it'll <laughs> so that it'll honk and you just follow. Yeah. You know, you try to ignore everybody else who's doing the same thing to get their their car. It's yeah. a mess. It sounds so like a nightmare. It's a nightmare. It's a Subaru nightmare. So I went there and there was just like two cars in the in the trailhead parking lot where I went. Ooh. And that was great. And Bonus. Yeah. So I, I did a little hike with the uh, Mamiya RB67. I thought about taking the the Chamonix 4x5. And I thought, you know, this is my first hike. Let's let's go a little lightweight here. So the RB was that. <laughs> now, okay. RB is lightweight. Yeah. Gotcha. Typically what I'll do is I'll 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 hold the RB in my hand as as I hike, right? You know, just carry it along. But one, I was on pretty rough terrain, so I needed um, trekking poles or hiking poles. So I put the the RB in my backpack, which made my backpack really heavy. Mm-hmm. But it also made shooting a little more deliberative, you know? I like it. I couldn't, like, if you have like a camera around your neck, like a nice 35 millimeter, or you have the RB in your hand, you walk around and you see something and, oh, take a picture of that. Oh, take a picture of that. You know, you're essentially doing street photography in the wild. Totally. And this wasn't the case. This was much more like shooting four by five. Now I didn't carry a tripod because it's just the RB67. It's light enough to handhold. Mm-hmm. So I, well, I kept it in my backpack. And so when I see something, I'd have to stop and mercifully take off my pack and take oh, the gosh. camera out of my pack and shoot a few photos, you know? Sometimes I would walk around a little bit without the pack and, and shoot, but usually it would be a, a shot or two, not quick. Sometimes, you know, I would set up the shot. It's very similar to shooting four by five. Mm-hmm. And then I'd, you know, maybe take a snack or you sit there and, and enjoy nature for a little bit and pack it all up and continue on. I definitely see that being kind of a perfect way to differentiate like is this scene worth me getting my backpack getting my backpack around and taking all this stuff out yeah i mean it really is and that's that's how i determine shots for four by five too is like if i'm in the car is it worth stopping you know of course and then if it's in their backpack is it worth stopping walking you know you get a pace when you're hiking and, and stopping can really throw you off do you listen to music or are no. you just listening to nature? Um, as much as possible. It, it was it was March, so there wasn't a ton of nature. Okay. I saw a few eagles. Okay. And I saw what I think is the most geese I've ever seen in one like flock, I guess. And it was Whoa. about a dozen huge Vs in the air. Oh, cool. It was more than I'd ever seen. And it was it was really neat. I'm not a big fan of geese, but this was really cool. Yeah, geese are a little weird, to yeah, be honest. Ge- I saw a weird bird too. I've been kind of like on a a birding thing lately. It's been fun. Okay. I even like recognized an asshole bird because I just I knew it was a bluebird. I was like, that's a fucking bluebird. Oh, I know that. I know that. <laughs> well, and I turned around and there he was. There he was. I, I didn't, I saw some crows. Speaking of corvids, I saw some crows uh, and, nice. and a few magpies. And magpies Aww. are probably my favorite. I mean, don't really? tell my crows. I love my crows. But yeah, I was about to say, I thought crows were your favorite. Well, are, I mean. Are my daily driver. 
Okay, okay. Gotcha. And 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 you take the corvids out on the weekends. Well, yeah, the the the, <laughs> the magpies are they're not. We don't have them in the city. They're only out in the shrub step area of Washington, and mm-hmm. so you you only really see them there. So it's a treat if you don't live there to see them. Of course. And they're always silly and doing just like weird things. Crows do that too, but I'm kind of used to their weird things. Mm-hmm. But but magpies, yeah, they're weird, funny birds. And so yeah, I like that. Yeah, if if they're a little skittish, but if you if you're still enough, they're there. Uh, over the winter, there is some sort of dove that roosts in the basalt pillars, mm. and you're not allowed in that section until their their nests start to hatch. And so they have started to hatch, and so we're allowed there now. And so it was neat to still see them there because they'll move on; they're migratory. And when they move on, other birds move in. And the other birds that move in, I'll see in in the middle of spring, I I think they're swifts, or at least they Mm. act very much like swifts. Mm -hmm. I guess they could be some sort of swallow, but I I think they're swifts. And I'm very excited for those. They're they're also in the top five list of favorite birds. Nice. It was a great, I did 11 miles in- Wow, uh, that's a good- First hike. It was it was a little bit much. I did eleven miles. I did uh, in in eight and a half hours. And and if you look at the times of me stopping and the times of me moving, it was split about fifty fifty. <laughs> I was I was not moving as much as I was moving, but yeah. I found a few new places that I need to get back to to photograph, mm-hmm. and I found a beautiful sunset spot. And I'm Ooh. just I'm just so excited to get back out there and explore an area very close to um very close to my heart, but also very close to places I've been before, but still very new to me. Yes. And I think that's important. So I'm very excited for that. But you know what? Let's start the show. I guess. You didn't even ask me what my favorite bird was. Oh no, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that we were talking about that. So <laughs> what is your favorite bird? I mean, I would say dodo bird, but I've never actually like seen a dodo bird before. So um, I'm going to say hummingbird. Okay. Yeah. You have a good relationship with hummingbirds. I do. I have very good relationships with uh, hummingbirds. They are my favorite. They, they, I love they them very much. They land on you and, and give you like hummingbird kisses. They do. When I was eating an apple. Yes. You remember that story. I Of course I remember that story. Yeah. That was like a big, that was a very big deal. Also, when I went up to Santa Cruz. Uh, to shoot surfing, I shot almost probably half <laughs> of my 50-foot roll on a hummingbird because he was just hanging out. Why wouldn't you do that? Yeah. It was I, it was incredible. I was just like, oh my gosh, he's just like wants to be part of the, the deal, I guess. So. I've heard hummingbirds can be kind of dicks sometimes though. Oh my God. Yes. My, okay. So this is some suburbia bliss right here. My sister lives down the road. I ended up giving her one of my patio chairs and we were sitting outside just relaxing with her husband and her husband was like, there he is. And I was like, what is it? He's like, that hummingbird is a dick. And I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, dude, he's so loud. He's rude. And he waits there. And if he sees anybody come to the feeder, he will like attack them because it's his feeder. And when he goes to feed on the feeder, he doesn't like, you know how most of the time they're just like flutter in the air and they're like, 
you know? Yeah, he yeah. actually like sits down, like relaxes and is just like sucking away. And he makes this like super high pitch noise and his little gullet is bright red. <laughs> so yeah, uh, hummingbirds can be dicks. Wow. Now, speaking of dickish birds, my crows have adopted a seagull. Oh yeah, you did tell me that. Yeah, they've adopted a seagull. And so the seagull is with them all the time. He hangs out with crows. I don't- Is he like a crow now? Like, does he think he's a crow? He's a crow gull. Yes, absolutely a crow gull. A crow gull? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that sounds like a fucking, like, sounds like the croissant donut thing. What is it? It, it does sound like a, like a crawler. Yeah, it does sound like a donut. But yeah, <laughs> they've adopted him. They, they, they used to fight him off and then like send him away. But oh, shit. he has been fully accepted into their murder, I guess. And mm. it's weird. I have never seen this. I've seen I've seen seagulls hanging around once in a while, but they're usually hanging out with other seagulls. But one mm -hmm. thing I've also noticed is that this seagull's job is to chase off other seagulls. Oh my gosh. And no way. So the crows don't have to chase off seagulls anymore. The seagull does it for them. That's hilarious. Wait, wait, does the seagull make crow noises? No, he still sounds like a fucking seagull. <laughs> it's very loud. Now, I don't know what happens at night because the crows, they roost somewhere, you know? Yeah. I don't know if the seagull roosts with them. I don't think they can oh like, technically roost. I, hope. But I, I really hope so. When he's gone, sorry, when, when, when the crows are gone, he's not there. And Whoa. then when the crows are there, he is. He's never not around the crows. That's so cool. Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's like an <laughs> ugly duckling situation. Except totally. he grew up and he's just, just a fucking seagull. <laughs> okay, so let's start the show. Sure. Episode, we put on our house slippers and cozy cardigans and check our answering machine because that's how old we are. We ask listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird ass question we come up with. And this week's question is Eric. If you could start your own indie photography book or zine publishing house, what would it be? Tell us about it. We got four answers. I wasn't expecting nice, not bad. I wasn't expecting very many with this one. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very odd and specific question. So that's um, what happens when we ask questions on odds. That is true. So push the button. Hello, this is Alice calling from the underwriting department regarding your Discover credit card account. Based on your recent payment activity and balance, you are eligible for an interest rate reduction to as low as 1.9%. Hi guys, Michael here. So at first I thought of skipping this one because I've fallen down with the sickness, but today I realized that my answer to the question might be even sicker. I like to start locally, meaning a small photo zine shop comprising of work from local photographers that ideally I know, at least from Instagram. Then, after initial and definite success, I'll focus on reaching out to inspiring photographers throughout the entire country. And the last phase, and the end goal, will be to basically take over the world. Meaning, 
having at least one shop per continent to basically make buying zines from around the world more accessible to everyone. Cheers, guys. I mean, Jeff Bezos did it. I think he has a good chance of <laughs> I don't, doing this. I don't think he's talking about that kind of world domination. <laughs> I mean, it's, he started with books too, so I'm just saying. I know. like the idea of making zines more available to people around the world because shipping is such a, a horrible, horrible thing. Absolutely. So if you could make them like, oh, you know, you're in this country or you're this this uh, continent, I guess, you know, you can get them from here. It's just, I mean, that's how, well, that's how businesses mostly run their their business. You know, you have different distrib- distribution centers and all of that. And I'd love that for zines. <laughs> that would just be nice. Yeah. Yeah, do you remember? Um, I don't know if you guys had this in Pennsylvania, but here we had the scholastic van that would like come to the neighborhood. Yeah, we had that. Nice. That was the best. Maybe we should just get like, just got to get a couple scholastic vans together. You know, there's got to be some old ones, right? Well, they weren't that like they're special just van, somewhere. like ice cream trucks or anything, were they? I mean, they were like, well, just just regular vans, right? Yeah, but they were like there was shell there was books in the van. Oh, we didn't have those. We yeah, had it was like a mobile like it was a mobile library. No, no. What we had was um I guess like a truck or something that would come up to the school and set up like a bookstore in in the cafeteria or something. Boring. Well, I don't know. You have a you have you now have a bookstore in your cafeteria. That's not boring. I guess, but I mean, you could walk out your front door and there was a scholastic van with books right there. Yeah, we didn't have that. Kind of neat. Oh, that's a bummer. I don't know. It could have been just like a really early like 90s thing. It could have been maybe maybe back in like the what, what, 30s when I was in elementary school. Yeah, I think so. Uh, that's they, probably they had, what it was. You know, mom, pa come up on on the book carriage driven by two, <laughs> two book horses and you could climb onto the book carriage and, and find like the, the Gutenberg Bible or something. Yes. I'm old. Yes. These are old jokes. Um, I would also have to mention that I'm also in the era where you were not supposed to go into vans because vans were dangerous. Um, but all the ice cream trucks were vans and the library, <laughs> uh, the mobile libraries were also vans too. So I'm a little older than you. So we were in fact encouraged to go into vans when I was a kid. I don't <laughs> Our parents weren't really there for a lot of it. <laughs> we weren't parented. That's why when they say like, oh, millennials were raised by boomers. I'm like, well, who the fuck raised us? I'm like, oh yeah, nobody, <laughs> nobody raised us. <laughs> we were just feral children. <laughs> All right, so this week's question is actually something that I am actually already doing, basically, uh, at least in the realm of zines. And um, I really don't have any, like, drive or need to do it in, like, an actual, like, hardbound book format. Um, But if I were to, my approach would be basically the same, Um, trying to work with um, both established artists and also like newcomers to the game and uh get you know the the books out to as many people as possible make it affordable and everything uh so i guess that's my answer and that was travis 
from uh, Travis Kennedy. We interviewed him uh, several episodes ago. He does better off zine. He yeah. just published yeah, one he of does. yours. He did. I was number 10 and it was great. It's. I think he's doing a great job. I really love how his format, the way he's doing it. So yeah, we need more of that. We do need more of that. He he compensates his artists. Yes, he does. When I know that there's a, a couple that will remain nameless of uh, zines that do not at all compensate their other artists. They don't even give them like complimentary copies of the zine, and that's shitty. You have to buy you it. You have to right? buy it. You may get a discount, but I'm sorry. I know a lot of people seem to enjoy that or at least be okay with it, but hey, that's not okay. These yeah. these artists are submitting their work to you. Respect them enough to give them at least a copy of their own work back. Good morning, Eric and Vanya. This is Sean Bascom, uh, B A A A S C O M on Instagram. Um, if I were to start a zine or photo book publishing house, it would be actually probably an extension of a youth program that I want to start, um, where set up young people with cameras, send them on their way, and kind of scaffold them through a process of creating work. And the output would be zines. Um, I've done one so far, the group of young people I work with, and it was amazing. And I can't wait to do more. Anyway, that's my answer. Love the pod. Thank you. Bye. Such a great idea. Yeah, it really is. Like we, we interviewed uh, Sirkane Darkroom a, a while ago. but it, and, it's, and it's neat that they're doing it, you know, as refugees and all of that. But it's a model that really could be replicated anywhere and probably much easier than they have at Circana. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, there used to be a school actually down the street that was closed and they use the baseball field, I think. It's, it, it was just abandoned for two, three decades. And they finally tore it down and built condos that are way too expensive. Um, but I had always said that if I had the money, I would buy it and just make it like a, like a fun, like after school school where it was like a bunch of art programs and things like that. Yeah. So I would totally hire Sean. It would be, <laughs> be ready to go. I love the idea of giving kids an introduction to zines, which is really when kids should be introduced. When people should be introduced to zines as as kids, right? Yeah, absolutely. I. I actually just went to this place called The Great Park, and there was um, a bunch of different like stuff in the hangar that you can look at, like environmental stuff. But one of them was an, an art project for kids, and it was making a zine. And it was like a ton. It was full. The kids were all there. I was like. I was like fighting kids for magazines and stuff. I'm like, give me this because <laughs> I was making one too, obviously. <laughs> they didn't tell me I couldn't. So, I would, but it, it was really, really cool. And it, it was neat to see what pictures they were like thinking, uh, cutting out. And, you know, it was, it was just a lot of yeah. fun. Kids are great. Uh, they're so creative. It's good to share, share with them. Well, our last one. Okay, guys, this is Dave from Green Bay. Um, I do have an idea for a publishing company that I've been kicking around for a while. It's not really a 
a company in the sense of you want to make money with it, but it would be an entity really to publish for young beginning photographers and kind of young kids coming up. So I think about Vanya mentioning she's giving away cameras to young kids and they're shooting shows or maybe they're shooting skateboarding pictures or whatever might be their interest. I'd like to give them an outlet where they could send their photos in. Um, we would select photos, maybe five artists or 10 artists per um, zine. And then we just give away copies. Each kid would get like 25 copies that they could hand out to their friends, to their parents, and just get them excited about photography. I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I am in. That sounds absolutely wonderful. I think it seems like a lot of the answers are like kind of extensions for the younger photographers and, and being supportive of each other's work. And that's really fucking nice to hear. Honestly, what? it's seems like sometimes it's so hard to feel like there's any sort of community behind, but you know, if you, if, behind photography because it is kind of such a personal thing sometimes. Uh, and then when you're younger, you know, differentiate, like, is this a hobby? Is this something I want to do? Uh, so being able to like nurture and show them like, look, like we can get this printed, we can do this, give them the confidence. Because I think that like, if I had a little bit more of that, I probably would have been further along. So yeah, Dave, amazing i think it's incredible uh still got a couple cameras that i can give away so just uh if you know any kids they you know i'm i'm always trying to make sure that someone that that needs a camera uh gets a camera so thank you all four of you for messaging in we really appreciate it and give a listen to our next episode next week the odd episode to hear our take on the question but until then, what is our next question, Vanya, for our next answering machine? Well, our next question is, what is the sweetest photography gift that was given to you by somebody else? Must be a surprise and not given on an obligatory gift-giving holiday. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be a camera. Think outside of the box, I guess. Unless it's a box camera, maybe. I mean, I yeah. I mean, if it's a box camera, that's a pretty cool gift. Yeah, but stretch your stretch your legs on this one a little bit. Come up with something that's going to razzle dazzle us. Ooh, we need dazzle and razzle for sure. Yeah, so, so call our answering machine, leave us a message, and of course, by call up, we mean go to Instagram and leave us a voice message. And if we like you, we will play it on the next episode, the deadline for the next episode, Tuesday, the 11th of April. Christy Cornell and Marla Kristechevich collaborated on a project called Neander Mindset that took them down the 124-mile length of Bayou Teche, a vital waterway in Louisiana. The project was a combination of photography and sculpture, as well as various other skills, all aboard a small 1970s Boston whaler. Real small one. Let's talk to Christy and Marla. Okay, Christy and Marla, thank you so much for coming on. 
Thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, how, how's it going today for you guys? Can't complain. The The weather is warming up here. So yeah, our, we get daylight until 7 p.m. It's a nice 70 degrees. So it's pretty, pretty nice. Oh, all nice. In all. Uh, well, so could you uh, start off by telling us a little bit about yourselves? Christy first, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm Christy Cornell. Um from here in South Louisiana, and I am a uh, instructor in the geology department at our local university, just as a side obsession, I guess, uh, photographer. And how long have you been uh, shooting? As, as long as I can remember, um, <laughs> <laughs> since I was a kid, basically, yeah. Nice. Nice. And um, I'm Marla. I am not a photographer. As a matter of fact, I'm a terrible photographer, as it turns <laughs> out. But uh, I'm a sculptor and visual artist living here in Lafayette, Louisiana as well. And um, I teach in the public school systems. I teach um, for the Gifted and Talented program. I teach in a program called Talented Visual Art. And um, I'm itinerant, so I go around to several schools a day and a week. And I teach um, middle school and high school uh, visual art, sculpture in particular. You're both teachers. Yeah. Yeah. What a great collaboration, too. This is exciting. <laughs> they made work during the summer easy. Right? That's yeah. true. Yeah. So you both collaborated on a project called Meander Mindset, uh, which is why you're here. So could you explain what the project is, or I guess was, and where the idea came from? Uh, Marla and I are longtime friends of 20 plus years, I guess now. And all of that time, we had helped each other with our own projects, but never work together on anything. And so we kind of thought, well, it'd be fun to work on something together. And and she got the boat and we thought it'd be fun to go play on the water a little bit. We both love to get on the water. I'm a longtime paddler and, and uh, like to do that sort of thing. So we came up with this idea of exploring a waterway and interpreting it, so to speak, through our different art forms. And so we chose to do the Bayou Teche, which runs uh, 125-ish miles through southwest Louisiana. Marla grew up on the Bayou Teche. Uh, I've paddled on the Bayou Teche quite a bit. And so it kind of seemed to be the, the best choice for logistical reasons and because we both really love it. Uh, it's a, a beautiful waterway. We spent a bunch of time on the water photographing. Marla made sculptures, small-scale sculptures out of natural materials in place on the bayou. I photographed them in, in addition to just like the, the landscape. And that was sort of the premise behind the, the uh, project. Yeah. So what were both of your roles in the project? Obviously photography and, and sculpture, but what were your goals with that? To really bring to light the artistic interpretation. So if you have two people going out um, on the water, it's the Bayou Tesh, it runs through four parishes. It's the longest bayou in Louisiana. So it's a lot of people's backyards, their viewscape. And we were thinking like, how can you take a body of water, which is this channel, this vessel, and use it as artistic inspiration? And how did two artists do that? It's our voices, right? It's our artistic voices. Like, how do we do that succinctly and like in harmony together? And so I've always admired Christie's photography, her black and white photography in particular. There's so much text value and there's such a mood in a lot of that. And we were looking at Fonville Winans photography of the Louisiana landscape of the 30s. Mm-hmm. 
and how he came in a skiff with a couple of his little partners and they were just kind of meandering through the bayous and the, the swamp and he was capturing these really beautiful scenes of just raw nature and it, it's got so much personality and characteristic and it's like almost romanticized in a way and that was kind of like a little bit of an inspiration for this project when we wanted to recapture Louisiana's like waterway, but not just through photography, through the textural lens of Christie's photography, but also through sculpture as well. Because my sculpture is so textural. I actually use the mud, the moss, the sticks, this in an environmental way, like, and I create the sculpture from that. So it's very heavily textural and very much about a sense of place. The purpose of the sculptures were to kind of like commune with nature and borrow from nature have christy photograph it so there's like a, a lasting memory of it but the idea of this these sculptures were never meant to like last forever it was almost like paying homage to the landscape for giving us this inspiration and like having this moment with it leaving it in the landscape and allowing it to decompose and let nature take it back in a way and christy would document you know whatever she found interesting within that environment, but also document the sculptures within that environment. So what role did the photography play? Yeah, the photography, like like Marla said, it, it served to document the work that she was doing, but it also served to document the obviously the things that we were seeing along the way and how the forms that, that we were noticing along the landscape changed over time. The way that the bayou starts out, it's a, a very small waterway. The, it's very narrow. It's um, kind of overgrown with trees sort of arching over the width of the bayou. And by the time you get to the end of it, it is probably quadrupled in width, very wide, feels a little bit distant. You don't feel like you're quite in it quite so much because it's so broad. Through the length of the channel, um, you change from that sort of intimate feeling into seeing different types of features along the way. So the way that the you'll see in the, the book is broken up is in these sections that are kind of influenced or, or divided by the different forms. So the first section is sort of archways representing the, the arching trees. Part of it was these towers. So, so a lot of the landscape along the Tesh is known for uh, sugarcane forming and has all of these uh, sugar mills with these big smokestack towers. So we started seeing a bunch of those things. And those were the types of things that I was documenting. And then Marla took that from the landscape and from the photographs. And that sort of influenced the forms that her sculptures were taking. So it's all sort of intertwined with each other. And the landscape. How was it shooting the Hasselblad in Lady Lucinda? <laughs> <laughs> that was tricky. The waist level finder standing on the moving boats, trying to, Marla's driving the boat and, and I'm, you know, a little bit closer, oh, a little bit further away. No, go back, you know. <laughs> so that was fun. That was, uh, we got better at that as we went along. I didn't fall in one single time or drop the camera, but there was a snake encounter <laughs> that we thought that we didn't see until the last minute and then christy got attacked by mayflies like a swarm of mayflies <laughs> right we saw the snake at the last minute as my hand was about to touch it because we were moving towards the pier and i was like trying to brace the boat from hitting the pier and then i realized there was a snake on it and <laughs> yeah, uh, crazy but 
it's maybe not quite so obvious in the photo, but there's the a photo of the snake in the book. It's, oh, it's stunning. What um what film did you shoot? Uh, T Max. T Max. Yeah. And you just kind of that was just your your go to. That's kind of my go to. Yeah, I pretty much all, almost always shoot T Max four hundred push to sixteen. Why I don't know. It's just sort of the way it's the way I've done it for a, a long time now. Now, Bayutesh ha- had been the path of the Mississippi at one point, right? Right. I think I'm, I'm going to get my numbers wrong, but it's something like four or 5,000 years ago-ish. Okay. Um, it was the channel for the Mississippi River, yeah. And it was a, a very important waterway for a very long time for uh, navigation, for transportation of goods and, and uh, that sort of thing. So. There's also some uh, Native American mounds along it too, mm-hmm. aren't there? So at least one or two of them. Is it like uh, in Lauraville? There are some near Lauraville. There's mm-hmm. some down close to Patterson. Yeah, it has a, has a really interesting history. I, I dipped into it a little bit last night in, in some research, uh, including a couple of, of Civil War naval battles. So mm-hmm. yeah, There's some old steamships sunk in the bayou and lots of, yeah. Apparently there's a train. Oh, yeah, we just learned below, about that. Yeah, <laughs> below the surface. So Amazing. Because yep. it had been, until recently, pretty Pretty junked up in parts, right? Yeah, there's uh, an organization that uh, that we are very good friends with the folks who who run that organization called the Tesh Project, and they have done in the past probably ten ish years, I think that they've been around, just an incredible job of cleaning up the bayou, promoting uh, recreation on the bayou. They've installed kayak launches in every small town along the waterway. They got a national uh, waterway designation from the National Park Service. It's the only one in the state. So they've done a lot of, a lot of really great stuff for the, for the Bayou Tish. It must be nice to see, see all that progress too. Now, you know, since you've, you've lived there your whole life and you remember it in its, in its, you know, worst moments, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Were you, I mean, it's a, it's in a very urban setting in a lot of places, but a lot of places it's not. So we often very isolated. It felt that way sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the when it passes through the the towns that it that it runs through, um, you know, you're kind of typically pretty close to downtown, and it's it's pretty you know a lot of residential stuff. Um, but it pretty quickly turns rural as you get out of those towns. So it's when you're when you're out in those sections, yeah, you feel extremely isolated. We came across really very few people. Yeah, while we were on the water, which we were kind of surprised about. But I mean, we were out there like six months and we might have crossed four boaters. Oh, wow. Maybe. Yeah. maybe. we were. It was typically during the week. Right. Um, hmm. Which probably, you know, was less people. But yeah, that is true. Um, well, on that, you, you created the, the book for the gallery show that you did for it. And in the images in the book itself, they're laid out north to south. Like it, like it, like the bayou is flowing. Is that how you approach the project as well? Like starting in the north and then moving south, or how did you approach that? Yes. Um, the the short answer of that is yes. The idea in an ideal world, we were going to start at Bayou Catabla, where the Bayou Tesh starts and opens up. At that time, I was very environmentally mindset, had this environmentalist mindset. It's like we're going to go just electric and row and just quietly. And it was a very beautiful approach because you could hear the bird, you could hear everything. There was no motor. And the current was v- is very strong right when the Bayou Tesh starts in the north. 
and it really pushed us around a lot. But at that same time, we were having to backtrack to get, because there's only so many boat launches. So oh, we'd yeah. go, we would take photographs, I'd make some sculptures, or just take in the scenery and get inspiration, but then you have to backtrack. So it was eating up a lot of our day going that slow. And um, so, yeah, the idea was to start in the north and end in the south, but there was a little hop hopping around just for time references yeah. until we got the motor. We, yeah, we we kind of started out just trying to, I think, trying to figure out how it was going to work exactly, right? How, how we were going to both operate and, and do what we needed to do while we were out there. So at the beginning, we would just sort of go out, pick a random boat launch, go out, kind of explore that little spot and then come back. But then once we started, so we got a residency which is where the gallery show was. So it was a two month residency where you got a gallery space. And once we got that, it was like, okay, well, well now we have a deadline. We need to, we need to get this done. And so at that point we kind of started back at the beginning and, and redid the whole length in day trips, but, mm-hmm. but same thing. We'd start at the very beginning and do the first 15, 20 miles that day. And then the next time pick up there where we left off and do the next section. So we did it like that. Uh, start to finish. Yeah. We talked a little bit about the photography and the sculpture, but that wasn't all of the project. There was a lot more like graphite rubbings, uh, collecting samples, uh, recording audio, and even you made some pretty stunning cyanotypes. How did the project come to encompass all of these things? My part, so I did the photography and then uh, the cyanotypes. Marla helped me with those, some of the bigger ones. I did a little bit of the audio. We did. We recorded a bit of audio. I did a little bit of that. And I I've, have done cyanotypes on and off, just kind of for fun every once in a while uh, for a long time. Part of it was that we had been collecting materials, right? So we got some of those grasses that we made the cyanotypes from. Um, we just kind of pull random things that we'd find. And, and we got some of that. And I thought, well, that might be kind of fun to make a big cyanotype of one of these things what ended up happening was that we started to also collect objects that we found so like beer cans and um little uh, treasures yeah just little treasures that we find (laughs) along the way and and at one point we found this there's there's a picture of it in the book is this little blue i don't even know it's like a little vase thing or it's it's not even a vase i I thought it was a christmas ornament yeah that's what i thought it was yeah that was right right and so we picked that up that just sort of floated by the boat and we grabbed it and then we found the (laughs) A piece of pulling things out of the water, literally a piece of broken glass that maybe was from a vase or something that was blue. And it was kind of like, well, here are the colors we keep seeing, right? Are these browns that are in the sculpture and these these couple of of blue things that we found. And then I had just randomly made the cyanotype and it was like, oh, well, that's kind of neat that it's like this very simple color pattern or color palette that kept just sort of showing up. And so so, yeah, we ended up like, okay, well, let's make some more of these cyanotypes and Blue color emerged. Mm-hmm. The rubbings and the water samples and the soil samples and like the earthen samples, that's that's definitely part of like my process for other work. I, I like it's a cataloging process and it I like to to stare at them really. I just I like the way they look, but they do give me I use it for feedback in my art and like, okay, well, how can I use this? Or like I like to catalog like where I've been or it's just a, a cataloging process for me. And the rubbings ended up coming in really in an interesting way. We didn't, I didn't know how we were going to incorporate them, but it, it ended up almost like telling the, the story of the journey of where we were when we made a sculpture. Mm-hmm. And so, and the water samples too kind of like started becoming like, okay, every time we would 
capture a photograph that we thought was had gravity or make a sculpture, we would take a water sample, a soil sample, and a rubbing. And that started oh. really putting things into context of like where things were getting pulled or created. Are there other, as, as the project went on, are there, were there other roles that you each took on that maybe didn't have to do specifically with the art side of the project, but more with the mechanical side of it? Well, Marlon was the boat captain. I turned into a boat captain, a trailer mechanic. Oh my God, trailer lights are the worst. They are, right? <laughs> it should be so simple. <laughs> I mean, they're supposed to be so simple. They are the worst. But uh, yeah. Trailer captain, boat captain, that was learning about gas, oh, ethanol yeah. free gas, learning, hustling with people over motors, like dealing with boat, like motor people. That was interesting. Definitely <laughs> out of my comfort zone. <laughs> Luckily, I was just along for the ride on that. I made, I've yeah. got the sandwich stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, you did. You brought the sandwich stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a, that's a very important task. <laughs> Sandwich maker is, is up there. Yeah. How did the sounds change through various parts of the bio? I love that question. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess with the changes from a, a more kind of small town, urban, more, I don't know, hesitate to say urban because there's no really big towns along along the bayou, but, but through those residential areas, lots of lots of grass cutting. <laughs> but out in the out in the more rural areas, you know, you like hawks screaming, um, yeah. passing by the sugarcane mills, and and at, at in part of the year that we were out, it was while they were while they were harvesting, so they were they were processing cane, and uh, it's so loud, and and it's you know the mill is right next to the bayou, so trucks are lined up to to dump cane, and and it's just this mechanical you know uh, i don't even know how to describe it um very very loud very mechanical what else other times it's very very quiet well and it was kind of really beautiful to be out on the water seasonally like that to hear the sounds change with the season and then those little what are those little birds that nest under oh, the, the swallows the swallows yeah, under the bridges somehow they live in harmony and they know the cane trucks are coming but they're just like hanging out in their nest and it's like this crazy loud sound and the bridge just echoes it and the water makes it, you know, the sound even more prevalent. And the birds are just like, this too shall pass. Like they're just <laughs> waiting for the sugarcane, you know, season to be over. And so that's kind of beautiful to see like how nature somehow lives in harmony with the soundscape of humans that changes. You recorded some of the sounds, right? Mm-hmm. How was how was have you done field recording before? No, I that was uh, I just bought a little uh, one of those little Zoom recorders mm -hmm. and strung that out and hoped for the best. Really, <laughs> okay. So as the as the project went on, you lasted for almost a year almost two years actually almost two years after the yeah yeah oh wow okay so the collaboration the the, the the project changed obviously as as it goes on all projects do but like marla how did you see 
Christie's photography changing? Well, I will say we went, I like how Christie's photography went from like water specific to like texturally specific. And then it was really nice because she was normally on the front end of the boat. So I can watch her process. And it was really nice because I've always known Chris to be a photographer, but that doesn't mean you always get to watch the photographer work yeah. within a confined space of a boat. <laughs> and so even just, and I like minutiae of things. And so like watching her like replace the film and the way she recorded her work of like, if she saw like a bird go by, she's a, a birder, is that the right oh. term? I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. And like she'd pull out that sketchbook and like hurry up and jot something down. It was like mile marker, 25.4, uh, purple tail, out of making something up. And like she would write the bird down. And it was like, it wasn't that it was a photograph of the bird as much as the bird being in this space of this mile marker was like creating this almost like uh, an artistic visual, maybe inspiration. So I was in the back of the boat manning the ship, so to speak, and to watch her like artistic process was very fulfilling for me as an artist because you don't always get to watch that magic happen so all in all with through all of this what would you like people to take away from meander mindset for me I, even though I, even though i'm not a photographer i really feel like the book captures the entire experience really well but the real the real gem here is just encouraging people, giving them that little spark of interest to go into their own places. Like, but that idea of just slowing down and um, just meandering slowly and like using that your surroundings and your landscape as inspiration for that sound and photograph project or something, you know, so what, see what it says to you, how do you have a conversation? How do you commune with your natural environment in a way that will be artistic food for thought for a project later? Yeah. Or, or just to enjoy, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And where can people see your work on Instagram? Um, mine is at Casey Cornell, and mine is Marla Kristichevich. Well, I think that brings us to the end. Awesome. Yeah. So thank you both. Just so, so much good. for doing this. I, 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 it was a beautiful, beautiful interview. This is really, really nice. Yeah. Oh, we, yeah. We're not often blessed with, with two people. We're often, we're never blessed with a sculptor. So, yeah. That's, it was fun. Which is, you know, we're a photography podcast, so it's not incredibly surprising. But still, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I love it. It's like totally amazing how you guys just took. You're, you just collaborated into this this project. It's it's exciting, you know. It, it makes is. it makes me think about how we should do that more, you know. Yeah. With some of my friends that maybe don't photograph but do other things, I can I can work with them. Awesome. All right. <laughs> well, thank you. We will talk to you soon. I'm sure. Yes. Um, okay. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Bye.
lately, our stories have involved the various and alarming sexual escapades of any number of wiggling photographers. But not today. There's actually almost nothing known about the private life of today's photographer, which means she probably didn't date Edward Weston. Today, we are talking about Esther Bubbly, a Midwestern photographer who had the ability to essentially disappear into the background and capture people at their most normal and vulnerable all while making them feel truly seen and understood. Esther Bubbly was born to Russian and Lithuanian Jewish immigrants in Phillips, Wisconsin, 1921. She was the fourth of five. With the Depression in full swing, the family moved around from Minnesota to upstate New York and then finally Wisconsin, towing an ever-growing number of kids along the way. By 1931, they had settled in the town of Superior, Wisconsin, From an early age, Esther took to art, and by her 10th birthday and upon their arrival in Superior, she had acquired a Kodak Brownie camera. Esther, along with her brother Stanley, would take portraits of their new friends in the schoolyard and then sold them the prints for some extra folding money. She excelled at school, skipping a couple of grades along the way. Though she was only 15, she was a senior in 1936, an editor of the school's yearbook. This was the same year that Time Magazine bought Life Magazine and changed it completely. Esther took notice and fell in love with the photos throughout its pages. The images in Life weren't stagnant portraits, but candid photos of everyday events. They were dynamic and vibrant, simply showing how people were living. Enticed by these photo essays, Esther edited the 1936 high school yearbook as if it were a youthful issue of Life Magazine. The stuffy portraits and boring group shots were augmented by candid photos of student life, dances, football games, hanging out. This was where the real high school memories were made, and this, felt Esther, was what needed to be in the yearbook. She wasn't just editing, but was a photographer herself. Setting aside the brownie, she bought a cheap 35mm camera and took first prize in a photography contest held by the Superior Evening Telegram. Photography was a fine hobby for a girl in the 1930s, but in the Midwest, it's not something that she could rely upon for income. For that, at the age of 16, she enrolled in the Superior State Teachers College, following in the path of her older sisters. After two years, She took a year off and worked at a photo finishing lab in Duluth, Minnesota. She saved her money and a year later was a student at the Minneapolis School of Art. She spent a year learning studio photography and how to work a large format view camera. She built up a portfolio while in school, but ended up leaving. Jobs in the area were just not there. Perhaps feeling a little lost, she moved to Washington, D.C. in 1940, where her sisters Claire and Enid lived. She shopped around her portfolio, but couldn't find work anywhere. Hoping for more opportunities, she went to New York, hitting up all the names that she could, including Anton Brühl and Edward Steichen. They were impressed with her photos, but could only wish her the best of luck. She took a job in a shady nightclub taking photos of the customers, but the boss was pretty creepy and insisted that her job was about being a little more than a photographer for him. She quit. This isn't that kind of story. Not this time around. Esther nearly got a break from Vogue magazine in the autumn of 1940. She was hired to photograph Christmas presents for their holiday issue, but she placed the floodlights too close to the glass vase and it shattered. This was apparently her only job with the fashion magazine. 
Utterly frustrated, she moved back to D.C. and her sisters. Though it was only photography adjacent, she took a job at the National Archives Division of Photographic Reproduction and Research, where she reduced original documents to microfilm. She hated the job, but sometimes the future can change by a chance meeting. Her boss was Vernon Tate, the pioneer of the National Archives Microfilm Division, He was a boring-looking, balding man who saw that Esther was unhappy. He was also friends with someone we've met before, Roy Stryker. Starting in 1936, Roy Stryker headed up the Farm Settlement Administration's photography department. By 1942, when Vernon Tate introduced him to Esther Bubbly, Stryker had dispatched photographers such as Dorothea Lang, Walker Evans, Marion Post Wolcott, Arthur Rothstein, and Jack Delano. There's no doubt at all that Esther knew of him, knew of his photographers, and loved their work. With the coming of World War II, Stryker's department with the FSA had been moved to the Office of War Information. His goal was, however, essentially the same, photograph Americans being Americans. Stryker probably saw her portfolio, but couldn't just give her an assignment. She was given a job in the darkroom. But this gave her a chance to study the photos coming in from the field. At this time, they were likely the photos by John Collier Jr., Marion Post Walcott, and Gordon Parks, who had recently joined with Stryker. After the new year, and a year following her disaster at Vogue magazine, Esther turned her camera upon Disson's Boarding House, a fading 21-room apartment building where her sister Enid was living probably shooting with an Icoflex twin lens reflex and lighting rooms with floodlights, her square images show the everyday life in the boarding house. Here are the tenants, both men and women, all government clerks from across the country. They're talking on the phone, they're playing bridge, they're hanging laundry, they're reading, they're mingling. They're mingled in bedrooms, though the commingling of sexes was expressly forbidden. They were showering and shown waiting for the shower. These photos taken in January 1943, captured life as it was lived. They were different from Lang's migrant mother and Evans' many signs. They weren't the blasted west of Arthur Rothstein or the exhausted workers of Jack Delano. These photos showed the vibrancy, excitement, and sheer boredom of youth. Esther showed Stryker the 30 or so photos, and he was impressed. Within days, she was out of the darkroom and had a position as one of his field photographers. The only catch was that Esther couldn't drive. Maybe you'll remember episode 38, where we talked about Marion Post Wolcott's adventures driving and getting stuck in the mud in Tennessee and where she had to dig herself out. There would be no such hijinks for Esther. For the time being, Stryker assigned her locally. Through February and March, she photographed servicemen on leave in and around the capital. There were beer drinkers in bars, girls asleep in train stations, parades, and local dances. The jitterbug was all the rage. Her camera turned not to the event, but to the people watching the event. And she was one of the first photographers to do this. By summer, Stryker was preparing to leave his government job to move into the private sector and work for the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey. Before his departure, however, he had one more idea for Esther. Perhaps it was because she couldn't drive and he felt bad that all she could photograph was the Washington, D.C. area 
For the summer of 1943, he wanted Esther to photograph American bus travel. Gasoline had been rationed for the war, and people were taking greyhounds almost everywhere now. For four long weeks in September, Esther lived on a cramped greyhound bus. She rode the dirty dog through much of the eastern Midwest, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Louisville, Chattanooga. She carried with her a letter from Stryker assuring that, that she was on assignment and that the photographs would be censored if needed. This put Greyhound's mind at ease, though they gave their permission. Like with her boarding house photos, Esther photographed the boring humanity of it all. The station porters, the riders, the standees on the overcrowded buses. But she also talked to a few fellow travelers along the way getting to know as many as she could. When she wasn't writing, she was waiting for the next bus, photographing the station workers and the mechanics behind the scenes. She probably got to know the drivers best. They might tell you that they go in for athletic sports. One of her drivers told her. But don't believe it. Wolfing around, that's what they do. Chasing women. Her subjects appear as exhausted as you might imagine. Buses were supposed to seat 37 passengers, but would often squeeze in over 60. There were servicemen sleeping at tables, young women sleeping at station benches, young men passed out in luggage compartments. She captured laughter and tears and the expressionless faces of middle America moving around the country as best they could. She was even able to photograph the small towns they passed through, giving those particular photos a very FSA feel. Curiously, they are her least interesting. Esther had a particular way with people, a specific aesthetic, and soon those around her would take notice. Through the fall of 1943, Esther was assigned a high school to photograph and began using a 4x3 field camera, getting used to it by photographing around D.C., focusing upon the new family of Hugh Massman a student at the Naval Air Station. Though these photos are often ignored, falling between her bus series and the rest of her life, they show a photographer learning a new camera and successfully making it bend to her will. The following spring, Roy Stryker made sure that her bus story photos received the attention he believed they deserved. In May, the magazine, U.S. Camera, ran one of her photos on the cover. Following the next month with a feature, the magazine Minicam did the same. By this time, Stryker had left the government for Standard Oil and invited Esther to join him. She moved to New York and was now working with Gordon Parks, Saul Libson, Edwin and Louise Roscom, and Russell Lee, many of whom had followed Stryker to Standard. They were all paid equally, $150 a week, plus expenses. The work was basically the same as it was with the government. Stryker gave his photographers assignments, and they went on their way. It's a reasonable question to ask why an oil company would hire Roy Stryker and his photographers to do basically the same thing they were doing for the government and the FSA. Without going into too much boring detail, Standard Oil, founded and run by the Rockefellers, had been ruled in court to be a monopoly and was broken up into 30-some small companies, most of which have now evolved into the companies we know today, Exxon, Mobil, Chevron, Golf, BP, Conoco, Phillips, Marathon, etc. But at this point, almost all of them were called Standard Oil of whatever state they were based out of. It was Standard Oil of New Jersey that hired Stryker at a time when they realized two things. First, people really liked the photos coming out of the FSA. Second, people really hated oil companies. Perhaps Standard Oil of New Jersey could win them over through the use of photographic art. Following World War II, what won people over was, of course, cheap gas, cheap cars, and a whole lot of leisure time. 
Fortunately, the photographers were there to capture it all on Standard's dime. Standard saw it more as public relations than advertising. They also saw the benefits of documenting their part in the oil industry, and New Striker was the man to do it. But instead of showing the poor and broken folk of Great Depression, they could show the recovery following the war. For the next three years, Esther would work under Stryker and produce thousands of photos for the Standard Oil of New Jersey archives. Her first assignment was in Texas. Esther had learned how to drive and made her way to Tumbal, a small oil town outside Houston. Before leaving, she discussed the project with Stryker, but as was usual, he left the photography end of things to the photographer. He would impose no style restrictions on his freelancers, and so with her Rolleiflex, she took over 600 photos. She shot both outside and in. For the town shots, she came up with a philosophy. In doing some street scenes and various shots of that type, I found the best procedure was to take a few pictures, then answer the question of the curious as to what I was doing and why. Then to stand around and wait until my subjects got thoroughly bored with me and went back to their own conversations or interests. Esther developed her shots while in town, showing some of the townsfolk her contact sheets. The reaction was incredibly positive. Here were photos of their friends and family as they lived, at work, in school, at church. They didn't feel like they were invaded or watched over, but that they were seen and understood. The reaction even shocked Standard Oil. They arranged for a townwide showing of Esther's prints. The photos were in the company's offices, of course, but also the local bank and the county fair. Soon, various magazines like Minicam and Coronet featured the photos as well the latter feature running 20 pages. As her tombball photos gained in popularity, Esther continued her travels throughout the South through the rest of 1946. She photographed ranch life in Texas and industrial sites in New Mexico. She photographed her life on the road as well. For nine months, she crisscrossed the lower Southwest. Soon she was visiting and photographing North Carolina, Massachusetts, Minnesota, New Mexico, and then Stryker had another idea. He loved Esther's bus photos and wanted her to recreate them. She jumped at the chance and wound up producing some of her greatest work. In the spring of 1947, she boarded a Greyhound in New York and rode all over the East, Scranton, Buffalo, Cleveland, and back again. These images were more dramatic, more artistic. Some have a film noir feel to them. For these, she convinced Stryker to let her use a 35mm camera, and likely because of the smallish ness of the body. She was able to shoot quietly and with hardly anyone noticing. Fifteen images from the project were published in the April 1948 issue of Pageant Magazine. But that was also around the time that Standard Oil was trying to figure out why they were paying all of these photographers to travel around the country with almost nothing for Standard Oil to show for it. At first, they slashed the budget. And then the following year, after spending over a million dollars for 70,000 photos, the company <laughs> indicated that the project was over. Stryker began looking for something else, and Esther would follow. But Esther had also branched out on her own. She was a freelancer, not only for Standard Oil, but for the Children's Bureau, a federal child welfare agency. She also did work for Ladies Home Journal as a photo editor. Esther also shot for the black magazine Our World, where she was featured with her old friend Gordon Parks. For them, she photographed Howard University and New Orleans. With this stepping out, she was remembered by Edward Steichen, whom she had met in New York in 1940. 
Steichen was now organizing photography exhibits for the Museum of Modern Art and selected Esther to appear in the 1946 exhibition called In and Out of Focus. She showed her work alongside photographers such as Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, and Lisette Modell, plus dozens of other photographers. The following year, Steichen would display more of her work at the BOMA in a six-woman exhibition with Dorothea Lange and Margaret Bourke-White. For Esther, the late 1940s was a blur of work. She even got married for a bit, in or around 1948. She married Roy Stryker's administrative chief, Edwin Locke. She kept her private life very private, and almost nothing is known about this relationship, other than that it ended probably that same year. In 1949, she did a photo essay for Ladies Home Journal called What is Mental Illness? She started by photographing two fairly standard mental hospitals in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. They were essentially prisons meant only to house the mentally ill. She then shot a new hospital in Minnesota based more around treatment than confinement. For four months, the magazine ran the continuing series. Esther found it to be the most interesting work she had done up to that point. Esther's work with Ladies Home Journal was featured in their How America Lives and Profiles of Youth series. How America Lives was mostly concerned with the day-to-day life of your typical American family. She traveled to Nebraska in 1948 to photograph a farming family and then to Manhattan to photograph a housewife. Neither subjects immediately seemed interesting, but Esther was able to capture their simple humanity. Profiles of youth captured the lives of teenagers. In 1950, she photographed Joanne Holt, a North Carolina teen who had a mind of her own, as the article was titled. Joanne wanted to have fun before she settled down. She dated a lot, going steady with seven different boys before turning 18. Esther caught her smiling and laughing talking with friends and fighting with her parents. Every photo looked candid, attesting to Esther's ability to make people forget that she was even there. Another of the series, When a Boy Quits School, was about Fred, a likable, all right guy who the girls loved, but he just couldn't make it at school. His parents were low income and his high school couldn't afford a remedial education program. He quit school and worked as an errand boy. Esther's photos capture his odd jobs, but again, she disappeared to capture his quiet and sad moments. While Esther shot almost exclusively black and white, there was a roll or two of color that she shot in 35 millimeter. In 1951, she shot what is almost certainly Kodachrome of Manhattan's 3rd Avenue L train, which was torn down a few years later. Her photos serve as historical records. But she also continued to capture the disinterested humanity of the public. She again faded into the noise of the background and captured the quiet moments through her lens. In 1952, Edward Steichen called upon her again to show at the MoMA, along with Edward Weston, Elliot Porter, and W. Eugene Smith. The exhibit was called Diogenes with a camera and was meant to show photography's contribution to the search of truth. It was essentially six one-person shows. The outstanding quality of her reporting, read the press release, is the expression of her love and understanding of people. Steichen wasn't the only one to see this. This was around the time that Life magazine was taking notice. Life had been Esther's first inspiration all the way back in high school, as the 1936 yearbook attests. Now, rather than fawning over the photo essays within its pages, she was creating them. Esther's first assignment made the cover. Choir of Cherubs captures a children's choir at Brooklyn's St. Mark's Methodist Church. 
The star of the show was little Jimmy Oliveira, who kept his toy six-shooter hidden under his gown. She would continue her work with Life magazine through the 50s. She reported on a backyard movie set, Kids in Hospitals, Altar Boys, A Ladies College in England, Benny Goodman, and Albert Einstein's 74th birthday. She also took photos for Pepsi-Cola, traveling to Ecuador, Guatemala, Peru, and Trinidad in the mid-1950s. Pepsi had opened a bunch of new bottling plants in Latin America and hired Esther to take publicity photos for their magazine Panorama, a magazine of places and people. She photographed an airport in Brazil, farmers in El Salvador, and an oil refinery in Aruba, all for Pepsi. It's a strange concept now, but this was the 50s and advertising was pretty much whatever the fuck you wanted to do. As the 50s gave way to the 60s, Esther turned her freelance work away from magazines like Life and Ladies Home Journal. The final photos of both were taken in 1959 and began photographing for Pan Am Airlines. This came about as she found new representation. In the mid-1950s, she began working with Sally Forbes, whom she had known from the Sandra Oil days. By this time, Sally was a manager and almost exclusively Esther's manager. She focused on the gallery shows as well as additional commercial work. It was Sally who had set up the solo show at the Limelight in Greenwich Village Coffee House, run by Helen G., who we will absolutely be covering sometime in the near future, we promise. <laughs> but in 1964, Sally secured Esther a job with Pan Am, who wanted a top drawer photo library for the Pan Am Public Relations Department. It was to be modeled after the standard oil model set up by Roy Stryker. Her job with Pan Am was to travel the world photographing the airline, its workers, and various human interest stories for their in-flight magazine, Clipper. Ugh, sounds like an amazing job. (laughs) And back then, the seats were like real seats. You know, they were like wide. You could smoke and stuff. Like, incredible. Incredible. So at this point, things are becoming a little repetitive. Esther's photography was evolving and changing like any photographers would. But that's not really interesting to talk about. So what we want you to do is go to estherbubbly.com and see them for yourself. The website is run by her family. And though much of the work is copyrighted, they have tons of her photos organized and on display. In the story list section, you can view all of her magazine and corporate assignments from Standard Oil in 1948 to her later work in 1973. And we'll get to that in a moment. Of course, you can also see thousands of her early photos that she shot under Roy Stryker on the Library of Congress site. Go do that. We'll wait. Okay, so through the 1960s, she had a number of solo shows, including work in the New York Public Library, the Smithsonian, and the Eastman Kodak Gallery. But for the most part, she lived in New York and walked her Dalmatian named Sheba in Central Park almost every day. She wanted to publish a book of her local travels with Sheba in the park, but though she was widely revered, no publisher wanted it. Though her photos had appeared in various publications like Arthur Rothstein's Photojournalism and the United Steelworkers of America's These Are Our People, she had yet to publish even a small monograph. She had provided photos for Anne McGovern's Zoo Pals in 1960, and so far, this was the only book to contain her photos exclusively. And these weren't exactly your typical Esther Bubbly photos. But a decade later, she photographed two similar books for author Millicent E. Salsom, How Puppies Grow and 
How Kittens Grow. Later that decade, she published A Mysterious Presence, Macrophotography of Plants. This was fine and all, but until the 1980s, none of her human work was really available. Just plants and incredibly cute, adorable puppies and kittens. Then, in 1981, Dover published Esther Bubbly's World of Children in Photographs. Long out of print, it features just that, her photos of children, mostly from the 60s and 70s. All 159 photos are utterly adorable, especially the ones of kids with their pets. Before her death in 1998, a few of her photos taken in 1952 of Charlie Parker appeared in a biography, and there was a tour book of New York that used her photos in the late 80s. But that's it. At the time of her death, she was essentially forgotten. There are still gallery shows, a few solo, mostly group, through the 80s and 90s, but it wasn't until after she died that their frequency increased. Still, few of those were solo, and those that were solo were usually in very small venues, like the Duluth Art Institute and a small gallery in Salisbury, Connecticut. This changed drastically with the publication of Esther Bubbly on assignment by Aperture in 2005. And then with the Library of Congress's, the photographs of Esther Bubbly as part of their Fields of Vision series five years later. Both are still very available. Most recently, this year actually, Photo Reactive published Bus Journey, which includes 100 or so of her photos taken in 1943 when Roy Stryker gave Esther her first big assignment to travel the Midwest on the Greyhound buses. It was here where she got her start, where the photographers around her began to notice her eye, her technique, her style. And it was from there that the world opened up for the young photographer from Wisconsin who adored the photographs she saw each month in Life magazine and wanted nothing more than to take them herself. All Through a Lens is made possible by our generous and amazing Patreon subscribers. Through their small monthly donations, we're able to afford to keep the podcast running. Patreon helps us cover expenses for hosting, for audio equipment, it helps us buy our books for research, and the zines to review. To our Patreon subscribers, thank you. We couldn't make this podcast without you. And this time around, since the last main episode, we've got three new patrons, and they are... Colin B. And Ben R. Big, huge welcome to all of you. Thank you so much. Go enjoy the extra extra silliness that we have for you. When you subscribe to us on Patreon, you get monthly bonus episodes, full-length interviews. Including this episode's interview with Christy and Marla. Some random posts and photos, and much more extra nonsense, of course. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash all through a lens for more information. Well, Vanya, our show, I'm I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel. I have no more podcasts left in my podcast bucket. Oh. Yeah, it's a podcast bucket slash popcorn bucket. I don't know if you had those (laughs) as a kid. (laughs) Sounds delicious. It was. Uh, What are you up to this week? Uh, Just 
fingers and toes are crossed that I find a place that's affordable. That's about it. <laughs> okay, nothing photography? I might do some cyanotypes um, pretty soon here. I'm going to start coating some paper and just kind of getting it ready. But it's still raining, so I don't know. Oh, that's We'll true. see how it goes. Like I, When it rains in LA, everybody's just like, what the fuck do we do now? I guess nothing. It literally rains for like an hour and everything is flooded. It's ridiculous. It's almost like Los Angeles was built in a desert and shouldn't have been built there at all. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. I will say it, it's it been nice to see some beautiful clouds. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. I, I miss I miss good clouds. Yeah. Good clouds are good. And how are you? What is your plans for the rest of the week and the weekend? Tell us all what you are hiking. I hope so. It's going to be a little chillier this coming weekend. And I'm still very far away from camping, probably a month and a half away from camping. I am a little wimpy, but you know, it also gets dark at seven. So yeah. like, what the fuck do you do? It's so hard to photograph in the winter time, honestly. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's light till seven, which is great. I've got, you know, well, it's, it, we just had the spring equinox. So it's 12 hours of daylight. So you have over half of your day for photography and that's wonderful. So yeah, I'm planning on going out again. I don't know exactly where, but uh, I will get there as early as I can and leave as late as I can and photograph whatever I want. And that's just a good day, isn't it? I think so. I think so. Okay, when we come back next week, we're actually going to have a guest for one of our odd episodes. We will be talking to Jess Hobbs about photography and farming. Yes. So exciting. It's very exciting. And dev party questions. Yeah. Don't forget to get those in. You can submit them via email, uh, allthroughlens.podcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at allthroughlens.podcast. And um, anything else to say, Vanya? And thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. A big thank you to Christy and Marla for talking to us. Please follow them on Instagram. We're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram by email. It's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. You can also check out our show notes and photographs on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is Conspiracy Dot of Dot Cartographers. Both of us on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag All Through a Lens Podcast to be featured. Find us on Spotify or any podcast app. Subscribe and leave us a review. And thank you all so very much for listening. We'll see you next week. We love you. Uh, Vanya. Yeah. And you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. I can't do it. I don't know how to say words. I feel like I have a bubble in my throat.